Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Sunil Madhu, uh, founder and CEO of Secure. The website is www.socure.com. Sunil, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Happy to be here, Richard. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So, you know, first question, uh, what does Secure do? What, what do you, what's your use case and applications? So Secure is a digital identity verification service provider. Um, we help businesses figure out if their customers are who they say they are or not. And we do that to help businesses sign up more good customers without friction, as well as to keep uh, fraudulent actors out and to reduce any kind of manual work people have to do today in order to accept uh, good people. Yeah, where would, where would fraud occur? or How do people sign up specifically and what kind of information do they put in or how do they try to spoof uh, these kind of systems? So fraud's a pretty large landscape, as you might imagine, um, but you can break up the pie chart of fraud, if you will, into three parts. There's malware-related fraud, um, dealing with viruses and, and phishing attacks and so on. And then there's identity verification, which is what you typically do for new customers to verify that they're real, their identities have been, haven't been stolen, etc. Um, and then there is account takeover fraud, which is what happens for an existing customer's account um, when a fraudster figures out the password or otherwise brute forces their way into the account to commit fraud with it. So we kind of focus on the uh, identity verification portion um, because we believe that that's the, the hardest problem space. The reason being that when you have, when a business has an existing customer over some time, they're able to learn about the various behaviors of that customer, including the way they pay or what devices they use, et cetera. So it becomes more easier in that world to be able to uh, differentiate between the the legitimate account owner versus someone who's taken over the account. So the actual high problem space is what you do when you deal with a new customer for the very first time and you have no prior history for them. How do you ensure that that person is legit and that when that account is opened by that person, it's not going to end up in fraud. So what we uniquely do is we use predictive analytics, uh, machine learning. Uh, essentially, we take a lot of data from the real world, from the offline world, if you will, and we combine that with information about people's identities online because everybody has digital exhaust uh, in terms of the use of the internet and social applications and, and so on. And we combine those two uh, in real time to be able to validate the individual elements of information 
the customer supplies when they're being onboarded, um, as well as to correlate information between the offline and digital world about that identity. And then finally, to apply predictive models on the features of those people, um, comparing those features to previously reported good and bad actors, if you will, um, in order to predict very accurately if that person is going to pose some sort of fraud risk. So, you know, we, we provide a bunch of these services for validation, correlation of information and prediction um, in the form of APIs that can be added by businesses into their workflow uh, when they're onboarding individuals on mobile apps or web apps and so on. Um, so that's kind of the process that we, we follow in a nutshell. Yeah, of the services I use, for instance, right, I may use my Android phone to log in and I may tend to do it in late afternoon every day, three times a week. And I may tend to go to these three drop-down menus on this one site all the time and ignore the others. So you're right, there's probably a very distinct profile in how I use a particular service. So I see that an idea came to mind. You guys probably have thought of this, but, you know, when a customer first uses a service, maybe they're limited to only a few things, low-value transactions. And then as you establish a behavior pattern, you open up their access because you know, okay, this person does this in this way at this time with this device, and then you're safer in, in implementing that security. Is that is that how you guys do it? Yeah, that's that's a, that's the life cycle. We deal with the, 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 the actual account opening. So let's say the very first time you turn up at a bank or a credit card company or a merchant website, and you set up an account for, for the very first time, right? At that point in time, there's no information about you. It's the first time the business is actually dealing with you. Um, so there's nothing about you that they can really trust. Um, so typically what happens is you as a consumer would go fill out a form on some website, and you might supply your name and email address. And then in the case of financial institutions, they may ask you for a lot more information than that. Um, and you fill out the form and you hit submit. And what typically happens is the institution that you're registering to, where you're opening up the account, they send that information about you to bureaus. For the last 50 years or more, it's primarily been credit bureaus. And what tends to happen is the bureaus, as part of their model, they compare the information supplied by their, their consumer on that form to that business to data that they've been collecting about us from non-self-reported sources like your tax information and credit information and, and, and uh, legal information and so on, um, that they've been accumulating in databases over the last several decades. And if they find that your name matches and your address matches and your phone number matches, et cetera, then they say, great, you're legit, off you go. And they provide a score, and then the business basically looks at that score, and then on that basis, risk creates you and decides to grant you access to some features and functionality in that particular application. Now, that particular modality doesn't work well for a couple of reasons anymore. Um, and one of the reasons is data breaches, right? More than nine times the U.S. population's data has been stolen um, as of 2016, Ugh. right? And that means really? today, yeah, and uh, there's actual sources for it. You can, you can actually research. Um, and we are happy to provide you some links if you like. But in essence, you can buy uh, data by people today in order to pass those type of bureau checks for about four bucks off the internet. You don't even have to go to the dark web for it, right? Um, so that's one part of the problem. The other is coverage. Um, the bureaus are finding it difficult to deal with uh, emerging population. For example, millennials, 18 to 34-year-olds, 
Uh, in the U.S., in the next three years, millennials are set to be 80% of the workforce in this country. And they're a very large portion of the world's population. Um, and like people living on cash, which is the predominant way people transact around the world, these people are treated as thin file primarily because their behaviors have moved away from traditional credit behaviors. For example, you know, we live in a sharing economy today. So young people drive around in Ubers and Lyfts and so on, and they don't buy cars. Um, and they're staying with, at home with mom and dad, paying off student loans, not buying homes as early. Um, the average 30-year-old in the U.S. lives off debit cards, not credit cards. So these trends put them outside the envelope of the credit bureaus. And so when a young person signs up, because the bureaus can't resolve them, because the bureaus treat them as thin file, um, they're subject to a lot of friction and sometimes outright rejection. Um, if you look at some of the top five banks in the country, they reject about 40% of the people that apply to open up things like bank accounts. Um, really? Yep. And so as a result, um, and, you know, when, when a person is subject to friction, you know, often they are required to produce documentation or turn up at some retail location or branch to prove that they're legit, that they are who they say they are. And most young people today don't have the patience for that type of user experience. So the, the trick is, how do you take these people, uh, these young people in this country, and globally speaking, 5 billion people who live on cash because credit is only available in 14 countries in the world. Over 180 countries don't have credit. So how do you take these people living on cash, which is, again, the, the main way people transact around the world, um, and accept them? How do you include them in, you know, as part of your, your business? And every business has to grow top-line revenue by signing up new customers over time and improving lifetime value. So acceptance of good people is actually the main problem driving the industry. And as you accept more customers, logically, you're going to let some bad apples through as well. So you kind of have to keep fraud down, part and parcel of acceptance. And today, most businesses accomplish both of these feats of fraud prevention and better acceptance using a combination of automated technology where they've built technology stacks using half a dozen different point solution vendors and so on, um, as well as teams of people in manual review teams that sit there and search for you on Google and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn just to make sure you're who you say you are. So we decided that the online and social signals are very good data point here, because while it's very easy to buy or steal someone's identity, it's much more difficult to replicate a social network belonging to that legitimate person. Um, and that forms an economic barrier in the path of the fraudster. So for example, when someone steals your identity today, they may alter your email address or phone number, for example, because when they use that stolen identity to attack 100 banks simultaneously, they know that each of those institutions are going to try and validate those pieces of data. So the bank may try to send you an email. The merchant may try to send you an SMS message to your phone. And the fraudsters right. want those type of checks to come to them, not to the real you. So if you take these altered profiles or fake profiles of people and you project them online, one of the stark differences between a, a stolen identity or a fake identity versus a real person's identity is the fact that real people are connected to other real people in the world. And those connections show up in the form of 
social network connections and professional networks like LinkedIn or private you know networks like Facebook or Pinterest or whatnot. And so we look at the combination of the uh, span of the digital personas belonging to the identity online and combine that with the offline characteristics of the identity, such as the name and email address and, and so on. And we're able to risk rate the identity as being real, synthetic or fake, as well as produce a, a prediction on day zero with no prior history of you uh, or for you that if this account were to open um, 30, 60, 90 days into the future, it's going to end up in some form of fraud or not. And we're able to do that because we get feedback loops from the industry across banks and remittance companies and merchants and lenders and payments processors and so on. We got feedback loops about you know, which identity uh, was rejected because of fraud, what identities were allowed in because they were good, what identities were sent to additional secondary treatment or step-up authentication or manual review. And so we're able to train machine learning models to differentiate between these risky and non-risky profiles and to be able to risk rate the identity from the perspective of fraud. And our machine does all of this stuff in typically less than a second. Um, and it provides codes, you know, scores and codes, if you will, explanatory codes, to applications that call the API and pass data into it. Um, and those applications then consume those codes and those scores in order to figure out how to treat that individual, whether to auto-accept them or automatically reject them or to subject them to some step-up authentication or additional vetting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're taking um, vetting people out of the hands of just the credit bureaus, which is great. Um, any issues? I mean, there's always trade-offs and things. You know, what if uh, I'm not a millennial and I use very little social media? Am I going to be forced to set up a Facebook or a LinkedIn account? Or, you know, people operate in different ways. And millennials, uh, I would say, are not necessarily the people with... Uh, with all the money, it's the older generation. So are you going to combine I, the existing models and add yours? Or you know, how do you address the, right. the personas? So, so, so we, we're not dependent on whether you are so you're have online and social presence. In fact, we've done studies on popping demographics between 18 and 70 years across the globe because we've been used across 108 countries so far. And oh. we've learned that even older people actually have online presence. Most of them are voyeuristic in that they... Your grandparents sit there and watch your ch children grow up looking at the pictures on Facebook or whatever, because most adults, Gen X, Gen Y, are apparently bad, bad uh, uh, at uh, providing information to their parents about their kids, the grandkids. So uh, yeah. we find that even older generation actually has digital presence, even though they may not be very active. But nevertheless, we don't want to penalize people just because they're pre-internet or, or because they're very privacy aware. They don't want to share anything online. Um, so the objective of the system is to come out with an objective analysis. And if that analysis means that we're not able to find any information online for the individual, we're not going to uh, say that that individual is risky. We're just going to say that we don't know. And so that person may be subject to additional vetting. But the fact that the Internet's 25 years old and because a wide, wide demographic of, of people around the globe are actively using the Internet, both from a mobile and online perspective, we find that it becomes a very good adjunct to just looking at everything from the offline world, from the credit lens. Very interesting. 
what what kind of curious behavior or things have you seen or trends uh, because you you know have visibility into all this data? What do you see that's interesting or unusual to you or helpful? Well, um, it never ceases to surprise us how ingenious people end up getting uh, when it comes down to fraud. Um, you know, we, we find that uh, there are all sorts of newer fraud schemes that constantly evolve. You know, I think of fraud as the normal because it's a crime and you've got motive, means, and opportunity. And if you say the motive is to make money very quickly and the means is to exploit uh, vulnerabilities and, and complexities in, in technology, and those two things are essentially a given, that means you're left with opportunity. And that means that any good person will commit fraud if the opportunity arises to do it in a cost-effective way. It's like saying if an ATM on the street started to malfunction and started spitting cash out into the street, how many good citizens walking by that ATM would just stop and grab the cash and stick it in their wallet and keep walking versus the ones that go into the bank to tell them the ATM is malfunctioning? So that so right. fraud is normal. And it constantly changes. Um, there's a trend right now, as you know, where U.S. is the final bastion, um, the final country actually that's, that's rolling out chip and pin cards or chip and signature cards, EMV. You might have heard of that. Um, the U.S. Yep. has decided yeah, that man. they're going to change, you know, yeah, liability rules to ensure merchants basically uh, accept chip-enabled cards to prevent card present or in in, in retail fraud. And what we've seen historically is that as those technologies have been rolled out in retail, fraud ends up shifting from retail to digital and online. So we're seeing that happen in the U.S. as well. Um, huh. So, you know, we, we see trends of that. We see, you know, newer types of ways of fraud. For example, there's a, a trend called card tracking where uh, someone may source a student, for example, a fraudster may find a student um, who is uh, just building their credit and they may pay the student $4,000 to buy their uh, cards, their credit cards or debit cards with whatever balances off them. And they will use those cards to commit fraud. And they'll tell the student, if your bank calls, you tell you there's fraudulent activities on your account, just tell them you lost your card. So, you know. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <right>? okay, okay. <laughs> there's entire types of schemes like that. There's, there's schemes that involve... Uh, people going to Western Union or MoneyGram or one of these remittance services to get certificate of deposits um, or rather uh, uh, certified checks, I should say. And then they take those certified checks and they'll do remote desktop capture of the checks from their phone into multiple banks. Uh, they'll go to the ATMs and withdraw cash and then they'll go take that check back to the issuer and cancel it. Um, you know, there's, there's a variety of different types of fraud, and that's what keeps the the domain very interesting and challenging. Um, so yeah. the, the the best way to to get a, you know sort of a one step ahead of the fraudsters, in my opinion, is to actually change the economics of fraud. Today, the economics of fraud are completely in favor of the fraudsters because they spend very little money and they have very large outcomes. Um, you right. might have if you if you Google for uh, New Jersey. Uh, FBI fraud ring, uh, you'll see a case come up in the top 10 such results uh, where the FBI shut down a fraud ring in New Jersey where 18 entrepreneurial people uh, used 7,000 fake and stolen identities to attack 168 banks simultaneously and over six wow. months built up limits on their cards, growing 25,000 
revolving accounts out of those 7,000 identities to steal $200 million from those. Whoa. So, you know, you can, you can clearly see that the economics are in favor of the poster. So the only way to get ahead of this is to make it much more difficult and expensive and time-consuming for the fraudster to attack. And while there are lots of tools today that allow businesses to inspect transactions on an ongoing basis to make sure it's still you performing the transaction, the legitimate owner of the account, uh, from a fraudster's perspective, it's much easier to walk right through the front door with a stolen ID or a fake ID rather than dodge a minefield of uh, tools that look at your device and your click flow and your payment behavior, et cetera. They can just walk right in with your identity stolen out of the gate and commit fraud. So, you know, we huh. aim to change that economics. This is pretty fascinating. Wow. Um, you know, it's one thing you said earlier on that made me think is, um, you know, my identity has been stolen a couple of times. I'm sure. I'm sure it's at the point. I wonder if, if, for instance, like every person in the United States has had their identity stolen sometime. And if, you know, hackers or bad people were to assemble all that data, I would think by now they would have data on, I don't know about every single person in the world, but I mean, certain countries, I would think they would have a vast majority of the entire population's data. And if they sat on it for a year or two and then started using it selectively, like, you know, it would be very easy to commit fraud with that. So that's right. This, this kind of answers that question. Now I see, you know, they have to be alternative methods and, uh, you know, other verifications than just social security numbers, for instance, or birth dates or your mother's maiden right. name or all that stuff. So it sounds like the behavioral stuff will uh, will be a big breakthrough. That's really great you guys are doing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, fraud causes, causes global government several trillions of dollars of loss annually from a GDP perspective. So it's actually a, a big problem for global economic growth. What about, um, do you get any data on the people or the actors or the, the groups that commit the fraud, is it concentrated in a small number of groups of people or is it pretty widespread? You know, like I would think low level fraud is probably more widespread, but high level with his large dollar amounts is probably recurring amongst the same groups. But do you have any intelligence on that? Yeah, we do. Um, we see fraud rings, which are coordinated efforts and they're sophisticated and they, they end up, attacking, you know, multiple institutions. And then we see the the average hacker kid out of Russia or wherever just doing it for, for a laugh. So you have the, the yeah. spectrum of sophisticated and unsophisticated attackers. Um, we've helped several financial institutions shut down fraud ring um, because you see collaboration happening between different types of uh, people. But just to see how, how brazen these people are, if you go to Google and you type in uh, the words Carter Forum, C-A-R-D-E-R uh, Forum, F-O-R-U-M, and you hit return. And you click on any one of the, the top 10 links that come up for that search result, you'll, you'll see that there are sites where there's banner advertising for fraud, right? There's, really? you know, there'll be a banner ad that says, hey, uh, buy you know, 1,500 uh, MCTN numbers for remittance, you know, for some remittance company that we're selling for 300 bucks. Buy packs of credit card numbers. Buy, you know, people's logins for bank accounts. There's a variety of different types of open fraudulent trading that happens across these websites where the fraudsters are openly transacting, even with your unmasked email handles and, and profile names and so on. So it's, it's pretty brazen. 
Um, and, the, you know, the, the attacks happen from consortiums around the world. Um, there are concentrations of certain types of group attacks, like, you know, click, there's uh, click farms, essentially, that are, uh, you know, in Asia, mostly that um, end up creating tens of thousands of fake accounts across different networks, and then they end up selling likes and shares um, and followers from those accounts, um, you know, which you can buy for, you know, 50 bucks. Um, so there are those type of, uh, kind of uh, consortium attacks. And then there is, right. you know, the, the oddball hacker. It, uh, it's pretty much a, a good mix of these. I couldn't say that it's a 50-50 split. It's pretty, it's pretty well spread out. Okay. All right, so we're just about out of time here. Um, what's the best way for, for people to find out more information about your applications, you know, and get in contact with you and, uh, you know, want to work with your company? So, well, they can visit Socure's website, Um We're actually launching a new uh, version of our, our platform in September this year at uh, an event called Finnovate uh, in New York, um, where we'll be showing off some new capabilities of our platform. Uh, that extends from uh, digital to physical identity verification. Um, that's you know you can turn up at the trade shows. Uh, there's Money 2020, uh, MRC, and, and several other shows that we, we attend uh, and present at. Um, but the easiest way is to go to our website. We'll find lots of information there. Great. Well, Sunil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.